The last time I spoke, given the message and how tough it was, I thought we'd go to something easy this morning. We'd go to Revelation chapter 3. And so, um, so uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, was, I was thinking about, you know, I guess how sick, you know, a lot, a lot of sickness going around right now. Um, seems like, I don't know, I know a lot of you have got the cough, you've got the flu, those kind of things going around. And, um, you know, one night, um, my wife and I, we went to the movies and... Um, you know, I'm sitting there. I don't know about you, but when so- someone gets sick near me, I get really sick. I mean, I guess the thought of somebody being sick, I mean, I, I'm, I got a weak stomach. I didn't used to, but it's, I don't know what happened, but over the years, it's just gotten worse. And so, just the thought of somebody getting sick makes me sick. And so, we're at the movies one night, and in the corner of my eye, I see this young man come next to me, young boy, and I can see him start to hunch over. And you're thinking, oh, no, no, please, no. You know, I look over at Autumn, I'm like, let's go, let's go, you know, and sure enough, you know, you hear the noise. And then there's that silence, that few second silence before it splashes and hits the ground. Yeah, I got some of your attention, but, you know, and, you know, some people would stop and maybe try and comfort the boy, find his parents, Um, not me. You know, I, I looked at Autumn really quick. I'm instantly, I'm getting tingly in the face. You know that feeling like, you know, you're going to get sick? And so I do what any good person would do. I start leaping over chairs. I'm stiff-arming people. I'm looking for the exit. And I'm yelling back to Autumn, let's go, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's hit my shorts and my sandals. It's, and, you know, and I'm like, I'm looking at Autumn. I'm like, just cut my leg off. Save me. <laughs> And, you know, today we're going to be talking about what makes the Lord sick, though, you know, and in Revelation chapter 3. And, you know, we, we should be disgusted by the things that the Lord is disgusted by. We should want to flee from it, just as I would want to flee from anyone being sick. You know, sometimes there's just that instinct where you just don't want to be a part of it. And um, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, if you're not familiar with Revelation, just go to your maps and turn left, and there you are. And so, if you, if you, let's do some background to Revelation. Um, Revelation 1.19 tells us, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which have taken place after this. That is the whole outline to the book of Revelation. We don't have time to go through the whole book, um, but what I really want to focus on today is the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And the Lord Jesus is speaking to the churches, and he's giving them exhortations and warnings. And um, these... The, this, these passages, they're really brief paragraphs, really, more than anything. And in, in these paragraphs, um, they practically apply to the churches, they prophetically apply, and they personally should apply it to you and I, because we need to read them and look and think, are we? Are we that church? Do, do, in our spirit, and in, in, our, in, our, in our walk with the Lord right now, do we, are our characteristics, do they represent the church? And um, there's no doubt in the day and age that I believe we live in today with you watch the news, you scroll through Facebook, you, you, know, you hear the things that are going on that we don't today live in the church that we're going to talk about today. And that's the church in the Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Now, I don't believe our church is lukewarm here at Reliance, but no doubt we are surrounded, in, in, even in our community, but you know, in Christian America, we are becoming more and more aware that the church is diluted. It's, um, we're seeing homosexuality enter the churches, you know, with, with very little fight from the Christians. We're seeing uh, the inerrancy of Scripture challenged on a regular basis. And so we are indeed in the day of the, the Laodicea church. So, um, 
the Lord, when he, he addresses these churches, and we can't address every single one of them. We're only going to address one today. And so we'll pick up at verse 14. But he, he does something that we do in the corporate world. Is he, he does what I call the criticism sandwich. And that's, you know, he'll start with, you know, he'll start with some kind of praise for the church or tell them the condition that they're in. Then he'll give them something kind of negative or condemnation and something for them to work on. And then he'll give them the promise or something positive going on in their church. But here, when it comes to the Laodicea church, that, that's not what he does. He doesn't have anything positive to say. This is very much, when you look at the, the things that he calls the church, this is, this is the no criticism sandwich approach that the Jesus takes on. This is the no bread. There's nothing soft on either side. You know, he, he's, he, this is protein style. You know what I mean? This is a protein style burger, you know? And so um, let's dig into the word today, together. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesab, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his, on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pretty powerful passage, really. And especially when you think that this very well could be, it'd be hard to argue that we're not seeing this today. Um, to, to give you a little background of the church in Laodicea and the, and the time frame here, we're, you know, I think it incorporates um, the time frame that we're in now. And the first church that the letters, the first letter basically in chapter 2 of Revelation, the first letter that goes out is the church in Ephesus. And the, the thing that the church of Ephesus stuff, suffered with and struggled through was that they lost their first love. That's what the Bible teaches us. Their priorities were completely wrong. And as you go through each one of the churches, there's different characteristics. And I believe when you get to the church of Laodicea, a lot of those characteristics carry on. And so I, I would think that the church, um, the lukewarm church, um, it brings in a, many of those same characteristics and, and flaws. And so we have to look at all of them, really, in some ways. But we don't have time. That's a whole series. And so we're going to focus here and we're, on the city of Laodicea. There's really four things that they're really known for. Um, one is their abundant wealth. They were the financial center of Asia, Asia Minor. They were basically the banking center. Um, they were on the, the, the routes for any kind of trades. Um, so they were very wealthy. And um, they were so wealthy that this area was prone to earthquakes and things. And at one point, the city was destroyed. And instead of finding help from the state and surrounding cities, they refused any help. And they rebuilt it themselves. There was a self-sufficiency that and an error that, that carried through the, through the city there. And another thing they were really known for, um, and which you know, was a part of their wealth, was their textiles. They, they were famous for the black sheep that they had in their, 
in their area, which is kind of ironic, but, um, and the black wool that they would sell. And then the other thing was their medical industry. They were known for producing an ISAB and having a uh, metal, medical school, and particularly having to do with op optometry. And so they would create this salve that came from the, the, the clay and the dirt and the ground, and they, they would use that to, to clean out the eyes and to um, heal some of the infections and things that they had going on that were common of the time. And the fourth thing they're really known for is their water supply. Whether good or bad, the water supply was a thing that everybody knew about. Um, they didn't have a very good water supply, so they, they would duct in their water from the neighboring cities. And so um, they had a six-mile-long aqueduct that would come over from this, um, the local city, Heropolis, uh, uh, and also um, possibly from Colossae. Some people believe that the cold water came over from Colossae, and the hot, hot springs came over from um, Heropolis, and so maybe when the two combined in the aqueducts, they would get the lukewarm water. The other possibility is just the length of traveling um, above ground and below ground um, in these um, natural pipes, these stone pipes, that the water would basically become lukewarm by the time it hit the city. The problem with that is the water would become basically you know, infested with bacteria and different things, and it wasn't, wasn't healthy. The water really needed to be boiled. It needed to be boiling hot or cooled to, to, to basically preserve it. And to, um, so this was a common thing for them in, at the time. So let's look at verse 14 together. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus wastes no time dictating who's, who's, given, who's given the letter here. And it's important because he realizes for the same thing that the church in Ephesus suffered with about priorities and, and where their first love would be, they need to know where this is coming from and who it's coming from. And so he calls himself the Amen. And so, as the, as the amen, um, it literally means to be absolutely firmly, faithfully true. This, you know, most of the time we think of amen, we're at the tail end of a prayer or something, and we're, we're saying, so be it, kind of thing. But he's, he's preemptively saying with all affirmation, you know, I, I'm the truth. Everything I say about to say to you is truth. Listen up. And so, um, it's the same words that he used, you know, we see in the Gospels where it says, verily, verily, truly, truly. Um, or amen, amen. And so um, he's establishing who's saying that, who's giving the message here. And then he continues on, he calls himself the faithful and the true witness. All through Revelation, that's the reference that he uses. And then, then he goes on, he says, the beginning of the creation. And so some might read this and think, okay, is, was he the first created? No, he was the creator. And John 1, 1 through 3 says this, And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing can come into being that has, that has come into being. And that word beginning there, it's uh, in the Greek, in the original text, it's arche. And what that means is it's the origin. It's the source. Everything comes from God. Everything's coming through Jesus. They are one and the same. And so he says, he's not the first, it's not a matter of him being the first created, it's that he's the source of all creation. Everything needs to point back to God. We need to take him into reference to everything that we do. And so um, that's, the, that's the way he clarifies and starts the passage. And what's really important about when you look at the church in Laodicea is that, you know, unlike the structures that we have um, 
in our, in our in what we think of in America, we think of democracy as the greatest thing, right? But that's not how the church was designed to be a democracy. It was, it was designed to be ruled by the Lord. And then he would put shepherds and pastors and elders to rule over the people, knowing that they were led by the Lord. And so, so the church in Laodicea, though, they have it backwards. And if you look at the different, if you want to look, look at, and you should circle this in verse 14, where it says, of the church of the Laodiceans. You ought to circle of the Laodiceans. Because in all six other letters that go out to the churches, it says, it says the churches, I'll give you an example. If you go back to verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. So it's in the city or of the city, right? That's the description of the church, right? But not here. And it's no mistake that the Lord points out, and Jesus says, of the church of the Laodiceans, that who ruled that church was the people, they had, failed to leave, they had failed to allow God to rule that church. And this is, a, this is the epidemic that we see in many churches today, is that they, they want to raise up a people, and they want to rule the church by the people. And we need to have God ruling our lives and ruling our churches. 1 Peter 5, uh, 2 through 4 says this, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a couple important points to look at when you, when you hear that, that verse. For, first of all, when you hear that verse, many of you, maybe even myself, I think about it and I go, that just disqualifies a lot of pastors and a lot of churches, doesn't it? For sordid gain voluntarily, lording it over those allotted to your charge. Um, examples to the flock. That's not what we see in a lot of churches. You know, are we, you know, then we have to look at it personally and say, are we examples for those that would shepherd, our, you know, as men, and we're going to shepherd and pastor our houses. Are we examples to those? But many of us, and we make our decisions based on the fear of man, and that's not what God says in Proverbs. He says the fear of man brings a snare. And then he goes on to say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to base all of our wisdom and everything that we base everything on on the Lord. I'm going to put a verse on the screen for you, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. And this, I think, really spells out the day that we live and, and what the church in Laodicea and what the problem is and why God is so clearly trying to send a, a message and he doesn't sugarcoat it first. It says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. It's a scary verse. But this is what we see. Many of you even know. I mean, you know pastors that have you know, turned away from the word of God and are promoting things in the church that they have no business doing. And, you know, the sad truth is that a lot of that comes from, you know, it comes from us as individuals, where I don't, I don't think um, we're guilty of that here at this church. I think we have a pastor, our senior pastor, that preaches the word with, with a boldness every Sunday and calls you guys to make application with it. And, to, and just you, you, it's hard to leave her not Sunday without having conviction. I don't care what state you're in, you know, and go, man, I need to work on some things. I've got some homework to do. And... Um, We've had people leave the church for that reason. And, you, and, you know, and I recently heard of a story, and I, you know, my answer to that is praise the Lord. 
It's, uh, if people leave this church for conviction, I say, amen. Because, you know, for as many that leave, we're going to grow this church. You can see the discipleship that's going on. We, you, you witnessed this morning with the school of ministry. What a powerful impact we will have if we raise up people that will stick to the word of God and preach it and teach it. And so let's, let's get to the heart of the message this morning. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That there is a powerful message. To vomit out of your mouth. The Lord wants nothing to do with lukewarmness. He, he, he literally would literally reject it out of his body. The very, the very, out of the very orifice that he would love to preach the word of God from, he would spew basically the lukewarm church out. Maybe we could even apply that to ourselves at times. And it's easy for us to say that, you know, okay, we're not a lukewarm church, but individually there are areas of our life that I think, you know, because we compartmentalize our Christianity and our faith, is that in, this, in one area we can say, we're strong here, no problems. But over here, when it comes to my finances, I'm not willing to let the Lord in. When, I, when, it's, when I'm over in this other area, you know, hey, when I'm alone on my computer, you know, I think that's my time. You know, when I'm watching TV and I'm watching things I shouldn't be, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm sleeping with my, you know, fiance before I'm married, you know, these kind of things, these are all things that, you know, we, we compromise and we bring in the, 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 the world's view on these things and we say, and the basis is that we see it around us, but we don't see it with the Lord. And so he says that better to be hot than cold, or better to be hot or cold than be lukewarm. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, that's a difficult concept to understand. You know, why, you typically don't think when you think about your spiritual life that you want to be cold. So why, why does he make that statement? He wants us to be on fire for him to be passionate about and to really teach in such a way and to, and to exhort others around us and to love one another with such a passion that we would put him first in everything. But yet, when it, when it, but the flip side of that is that he says, it's okay if you're cold. I can tolerate that. But if you're somewhere in the middle, I don't want no part of that. You know, it's, it, you know I think of, you know, I, I'm an iced tea drinker. You know, I love a cold iced, iced tea. You know, it's, it's refreshing. You know, I'll take hot tea in the evening. You know, um, but nothing like lukewarm tea, you know. You want one or the other. And so the Lord, though, he, he you know, he, the, the reason he's so disgusted by it is that, see, hot water is useful. And the Laodiceans, they knew this. It was clean. It was pure. If they boiled it and stored it properly, they could drink it. But what was common in their time was that they would get sick if they didn't boil it first or if they didn't chill it. Because it would build up, basically. It was like sulfur water. I mean, you can think of, you know, Murrieta Hot Springs. We're, we have a very good example right down the street. It would be like pumping the water in from Murrieta. And, and so it was very important that it was cleansed. And so, you know, a good example of this is just the other day we were praying for the homeless ministry. And I have a friend that saw son is... Um, basically addicted to drugs, and he's on the street. And as we're praying for the homeless, you know, he, he begins to pray, and, he, and he's praying for his son, that his son would grow cold, that he'd be cold on the streets. Why? 
This is the heart of a solid Christian man, a brother in Christ. Why does he do that? Because he understands the way the Lord works, that in our desperate need and our depravity is often the time that we turn to the Lord. We really, then we become aware of the need for him. And that's a scary thing at times, but that's the way God teaches us. The word hot there means, in the Greek, it's zestos, and from which you drive the word zest. God wants us to be, have a zest for him, to be on fire for him. It's the same, it literally means boiling hot. And it's the same word used in Luke 24, 32, where it says, were not our hearts burning within us while we were speaking to, to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And then that word cold means um, sucrose. And in, in those days, it was, it was someone that didn't care who was completely indifferent to the situation. That was the problem in the church. They really weren't motivated. You know, had, they, had they been hot, they would have been on fire for the Lord. If they were cold you know, in their spirituality, maybe they would have been driven to the point of seeking the Lord. But they were comfortable. Some of us have grown comfortable in our lives. We're not challenged and we sit, you know, maybe you're thinking, not, not today, not in these plastic chairs, but, but you know, we become comfortable. Matthew 24, 12 says, and because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. You're involved in your sin, and, and your heart is growing cold. There's hope for you. What he's saying to the church in Laodicea is, if you, if you were hot, then I could use you. If you were cold, I could use you. I could work on you if you were cold. But because you're lukewarm, I can't do anything with you. He's in essence saying, you're useless. You know, it's just like the gym here. You know, in the morning we come in here, it's cold. And so we crank up the heat about an hour before you guys get here. Then we turn on the air conditioning. We're trying to get the balance, and it's so hard in this room. And, you know, often we get complaints, you know, because it's, you know, we're always we're people looking for a comfortable situation and a balance to everything. And when it comes to Christ, there is no neutrality. There is no balance. And so, you know, if you're hot, you get, we get complaints. If you're cold, you get complaints. But then if, and if, it's, if, it's, if you're comfortable and it's just warm, just right, you fall asleep. <laughs> and that is, that is how our spiritual growth is sometimes. We reach a spot where we're not growing anymore. We're just sleeping. Let's look at verse 17 together. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are some harsh words, the way he describes us. But, you know, what he says there is what? They, they believe they have no need for anything. They have no reliance on Christ. The reason we name this church Reliance is because we realize that there was a healthy spot, a healthy place to be, that if we were reliant on the Lord at all times, that we always knew that we needed him, that we sought him in everything, and we wanted him to be a part of every aspect of our ministry. Anything outside of him, we want no part in. Their attitude was, hey, when you've got money, you don't need anything. And maybe that's the case for some of you, but I think we definitely live in an age right now and in the economy that we're in that many of you are learning that tough lesson that, you know, easy come, easy go, right? And so the problem with being rich is that most worldly problems you can solve if you're wealthy. You can fix them quickly and easily. I personally fell into that at times. And then that there is what keeps a man from being dependent on God. 
you know, the Israelites, they struggled with this often through the scriptures. The moment they got comfortable, they found themselves in areas of trials. Matthew, but the Lord, he realizes it has so, much, so very little to do actually with your finances. It has more to do with your state and whether you're humble and whether you're poor in spirit. Not poor in your finances, but poor in spirit. Do you understand that God is here and you're always here? Or do you always believe that you're, you know, you're working and you're going to keep God in the same playing level field as you? And that's the question. And so Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poverty of spirit is really a consciousness of knowing what your emptiness is, what your depravity is, and your need for him. God wants to see you basically stripped down so you understand all his glory. He wants to take the scales off your eyes. He wants to put the eye salve on for you so you may see his works, his glory, and his love for you. It's in that emptiness that it says in Deuteronomy 4.29, from there, from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search him and with all your heart and all your soul. God wants us to search him in everything. Turn with me to Luke 18. We're going to pick up at verse, verse 10 of Luke 18. It's here that there's the parable of two men, uh, one who was rich in spirit and one who was poor in spirit. We'll pick up at verse 10. Actually, we'll pick up at verse 9. And also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, we often compare ourselves to the person sitting next to us. You know, our family members, um, those in church with us, uh, other churches. Um, but we have to look at ourselves. God realizes that they need to be spiritually poor. They, need, they needed to be humbled. And so when we, look at, when we look at this parable here in Luke 18, some of these attributes, he's, he's calling out the sins of others. But he says, I thank you that I am not like other men. See, the problem with that statement is that God knows you. He knows the condition in which you sit. You know, and he... And he's, and he you don't even need to explain that to him. And the truth of the matter, he knows that for all have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. Let's, let's go back to Revelation chapter 3. Let's look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. It's important to note here that, that um, the counsel that the Lord gives, that Jesus gives to them, is that it's gotta, where, where are they going to buy it? They're going to buy it from him. 
It's got to come from him, these things. And it's, it's, the Lord's got a weird sense of humor when he points these things out because, you know, the very things that they're proud of, you know, their wealth, he's saying, you're poor. You know, your, your eye salve and all, all the medical stuff that you've done in your area and, and autometry and everything, I'm going to tell you that you're blind. I'm going to tell you that you're naked. You have a textile industry, but you stand there naked, exposed and ashamed. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, ashamed of their sin. And so what he, what he encourages them to, in that, in that sense, is he says, take on this white garment of righteousness, the purity in Revelation chapter 1, we know that the Lord comes in wearing bright white. It represents the purity. And so this is, this is crazy. You know, you look at what he's asking. Is, where does that come from? It comes from the righteousness of Christ that you are to clothe yourself in. You know, and here, here their textile, what is it? They're, they're most, they were basically known for basically black sheep. They were black sheep of the valley. You know, they, they, were, they were literally known for black textile. The, the last thing they, I mean, and then he's telling them what? Come, come to me with white garments. Buy from me white garments. You can't get it in yourself. Revelation 3.5 says, He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. We've got to overcome this. We've got to, we've got to the only way to do that is through Jesus and his righteousness. We need to be clothed in his righteousness. He's, he continues on. He tells them to anoint their eyes with salve. You know, what is this eye salve? In John 9, Jesus encountered a blind man, and to heal him, he says this in 9.6. He says, they spat on the ground and made a clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he continues on on verse 11 of that chapter, and, and he answers the, the question of, you know, where do you get this eye salve from? He said, the answer is this. The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salam and wash. And so I went away and washed and I received sight. We can pretend to be blind to our condition, but the truth is most of us know our condition. And certainly God knows our condition. And he, and he says, and really the way that's, that's, um, it's revealed through the Lord is this. We have to let the water of the word cleanse our eyes. The water is symbolic of the word. The, literally the water from Jesus literally is what makes this salve. And then you look at the clay and the dirt representing us. The two have to come together before they'll be, the blindness can be removed. Matthew 6, uh, 22 through 23 says this, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That bad eye that it talks about there in Matthew, it's, um, it's, it's our inability, basically, to see God's grace, his love, and his instructions. Without God's grace penetrating you, and penetrating your heart and his love and your, your ability to see his love, you have nothing to radiate. You will not be a light to this world. You will not be a light to the other churches. You will be useless, as he says. You will be lukewarm. Let's pick up at verse 19. 
As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those the Lord loves, he rebukes, he chastens. He's telling them today, he says, look, you guys, you're in the worst state that you can be as a church. I don't have anything positive to say, to you, say about you. Some of you today, maybe you're in here today and you're like, you know, I'm in a bad spot. I'm not deserving of the Lord. I don't even know why I'm here. Maybe you're here today because a family member convinced you to come. But there's hope for you. There's a promise we'll get to. But he says, but I still love you and I earnestly desire that you repent. He wants to lead them to repentance. He wants to bring them back to a zeal. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He wants them to have that fire for him. I love what it says in Hebrews about discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. It says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as his sons. For what son is there whom, whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The Lord loves you. Some of you are going through trials today, and you're struggling through things. And you need to realize that this is the Lord trying to bring you back you may draw near to him. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. And shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained in it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." God disciplines us because he loves us. This is the letter to the church. And the idea of discipline is to bring repentance. He wants to bring back that zeal in your life that you'd be passionate for him. You'd be useful for him. That you would leave here and leave these doors even and maybe be on fire. That you would talk to your family members. That you'd realize that we are indeed in the end times. So be zealous. Be on fire for him. The flip side of that, and we'll put this verse on the screen for you, it's Matthew 7, 22 and 23. It says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How scary that would be, wouldn't it? There are many in the churches today that are also going to sit in the chairs. They're going to... They're gonna, they're going to do things in the name of the Lord. Maybe you serve in the church, but you don't know him. Maybe you give to the church in your tithes, your offerings. Maybe you even give to the building fund, but you don't know him. So Jesus teaches that neutrality is not an option in the believer. Matthew 12, 30 says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You'll be used one way or another. But if you don't have the Lord in your life, you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be used to scatter the people. You'll be used as a tool of the enemy to be lukewarm 
and to cause confusion for other believers and for those that may come to Christ. To be with God, we must know where he is. Let's look at verses 20 through 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. These are the promises of God for us this morning. No matter what condition you are sitting in here today, in your chair, and the Lord knows. Because he knew the condition of the Laodiceans, didn't he? In fact, he used it in every lesson to them. Is the Lord your priority? Is the church yours or his? Is your walk, is he included in that? Your life in your household. Is the Lord in your household or is he outside? Is he knocking on the door? Where you have Jesus in your life is a gauge of your spiritual health. You know, when you're sick, you know, and the first thing, that, especially, you know, we have a school at the church, you know, first thing kids come in, and one of the first things you do is the school nurse is sticking up, giving them a thermometer to see where their temperature is. You quickly weeds out those kids pretending to be sick, you know? And, you know, it's, that's a gauge for us. We need to look at, are we on fire for the Lord? If not, we ought to be. So let's, let's look at God's promises. We're going to put them on the screen for you. I think there's four promises here if you look at verses 20 through 21. The first one is it's a present promise. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And if you look at, if you study the verb tenses of those up there, I stand at the door and I knock. It's a continual knocking. He's continually there. He doesn't stop. The Lord doesn't give up. He's fervently in love with you that he would continue to knock. You know, I used to have to do evictions when I did real estate, and there's an awkwardness of when you're knocking on someone's door, and you know they're on the inside, and they're ignoring you. And, uh, but the Lord doesn't care. He cares so much about you that he's going to continue to knock and be there and be present. He, dies, he, he desires more than anything that to have an, an intimate relationship with you. So he'll knock continually. The second promise is a personal promise. If any man hears my voice and opens the door. The handle to that door is on the inside. It's your choice. Corporately, we can open that door, but it's a personal invitation. It only takes one person to open the door. We have the ability to affect being the light of the, of the Lord, to, 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 to literally have a, an exponential growth and, and impact on everybody in the church. But it often takes, it just takes one person to open that door. In your household, it takes somebody to open that door. Many of us, we hang the placards from Joshua 24 and we say, for me and my house, we will, we will serve the Lord. But do we allow the the Lord in every room of the house? Have we compartmentalized our Christianity? When you're paying your bills, do you let them in your home office? 
when you're doing your taxes, do you, look, do you, do you have them there? Or do you pay your taxes? When you're watching TV, is he in your family room? When you're raising your kids and you're talking and you're disciplining your kids, is he present or are you just angry? There are doors of your life that need to be opened and allow God in. Maybe you've surrendered your life to him, but there are certainly other rooms and maybe other areas of your life that this morning God would tell you that he wants to be a part of. He's not about partiality. My favorite promise here is the the third one, a precious promise. He doesn't just want the door open. He wants to dine with you and he with me. If you open that door to the Lord, he says, "I, I want you to dine with me. And the Lord's day to eat supper was a big deal. You would have, you would have, you would have had maybe had a big breakfast. You would have had a small lunch. But the third meal or the end meal of the day would have been a big deal at the time. And it's not the way we think about it today. You know, many of us will, you know, in and out drive through, throw a sack in the back of the car and let the kids mack down on it. But the Lord, he was, you know, this is why it was troubling as we read, the, read through the Gospels that Jesus would sit and he would dine with people. He would go into the Gentile homes. It was a personal, intimate thing that God desired. You would break bread with one another. You would have a loaf of bread and you would tear off pieces and you would dip those things into, into different sauces and different things. And you, know, you would double dip, <laughs> as gross as that is. It was intimate. You were able to be real with one another. You weren't rushed. It was the end of the day. That's how you closed out your day, was to eat with one another, to have communion with one another. God gives us a powerful promise. That's the last promise. He says, you'll sit with me on my throne. He will find you useful. If you open the door to the Lord, he can use you for advancement of his kingdom. He will make use of you. You will sit with him. We will reign with him. What a blessing to be in the presence of the Lord. God desires an intimacy with you. He says in James 4, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You're double-minded. Some of us here today, we're double-minded. We're thinking about areas of our life where we'd like to be. We want to be here, we want to be here, but Jesus is there in the door and he's knocking. He's still knocking. He's still knocking, waiting for us to open it up. There's three things we need because he desires more than anything to be intimate with the Lord, and we're going to put them on the screen for you here. The Lord desires personal time with you. It's not enough to corporately get together. What we do here is awesome. What we do in our growth groups, unbelievable. But none of that, all that is counterfeit and it, it does not have the same effect of what your personal time ought to have with the Lord. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in the word yourself. You can't rely on the pastor in the pulpit. 
You ought to question everything your pastor says from the pulpit. You need personal time. You need transparency. Any good relationship, any intimate relationship, there's transparency. You think of the people closest in your life, they know you, don't they? They know what buttons to push. The Lord knows you. He knows the condition today that you are in. He knew the church of Laodicea. He was able to call them out in their sin. You don't have to be ashamed to come to the Lord in prayer to ask him. He already knows. He's the omnipresent, all-knowing God. And the third thing, mutual submission. It's the most powerful dynamic in any relationship. Any healthy relationship you submit, to your, you take your own needs and you put them below someone else's. You do it for your spouse. You do it for your loved ones. We make sacrifices all the time, don't we? Whether it's time to take your kids to sports events, whether it's, you know, just maybe doing the dishes for your wife, whatever it is, we, we, we get the concepts. But spiritually, we struggle in this all the time, don't we? Spiritually, there's, you'll never have intimacy with God until you're submitted one to another. God has already done that. He submitted to his Father on the cross. God has already made the first move and paid a high price. The move is yours. The next move is yours, and whether you open that door. If you don't do these things, you can't expect to know God. You know, you teach your kids stranger danger, right? You know, you, you don't want anything to do with strangers, is what we tell our kids. And some of us have that same fear, even as adults, especially when it comes to our walk with the Lord. We don't know him. We're afraid to open that door because we, we don't understand his love. And Matthew, when he's warning them of going and being kicked out of the synagogues and facing death and persecution, dying martyrs' deaths, he says it's because what? Because they don't know him. This morning, some of you don't know the love of the Lord. And you need to know him. You're blaming God for things and you're, you're, you're here and you're hurting and you're blaming God. There's nothing worse than being accused of something when you, you know, have you ever been accused of something and you think, man, that person doesn't know me. You can accuse God today and be embittered, but you don't know him. You don't know his love and his grace and his mercy. Open that door and dine with him, have fellowship with him, and you'll see his love. Because the, the Bible promises and the Lord promises that he loves us while we're still yet sinners. He would take on the cross for us. Not that we had to clean ourselves up first, but we come to him and open the door in the condition that we are in. It ends the chapter here. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear. Do you hear God knocking today? Do you still hear that continual knocking? You may have opened the door in some areas, but God today maybe is challenging to open it in others. You think God wants to take everything from you, but he wants to give you everything.
2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 12 says this, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God loves you. He wants you to open the door and dine with him. He wants to have an intimate fellowship with you. He wants you to invite him into every area of your life. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying. Be fully committed to Christ is what he's saying. Stand firm for him. Be passionate about him. Share the word with others. Read your word. Don't rely on others. Make it personal. Make it intimate. That's what God wants. When we do, we have an invitation to dine with him, to surrender, to be in submission to him. That's an open invitation for each and every one of us.